Hello world, this is SpartyCast. Welcome to SpartyCast, brought to you by the Social and Psychological Research on Technology Interaction Effects Lab, the Sparty Lab here at Michigan State University. I'm Dr. Robbie Rattan, your host and director of the lab. Episode number 19, 19, the chemical element for potassium, which is appropriate because our guest today, Adam Liskowitz, is bananas about VR. That's a terrible joke. Well, I'm bananas about Adam Liskowitz's research and productivity in the artistic video game virtual reality world. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Media and Information. Um, he's also a, a lauded game developer. He's part of Rust LTD, a company that has made multiple games, including Hot Dogs, Horseshoes, and Hand Grenades, which is in the top 10 downloaded VR games on Steam and has a great user community. So he shares with us his interesting background that connects art and philosophy, avant-garde absurdism, and um, his experience in an artist collective uh, connects that with his academic focus on making games and studying games that break our expectations and present contrast in ways. It's very artistic. This episode reminds me of that feeling I get at a museum when I actually come to appreciate when I when I see beyond just the surface level pictures or whatever it is I'm looking at and really understand why the the artist did what they did and how it's creative and unique and makes you see the world in a different way. Um, so I hope you get a little bit of that feeling listening to this episode with Adam. And thanks for listening to the Sparty Lab podcast. Hello, Adam. Welcome to the Sparty Cast. How are you? I'm pretty good. How about you? Good, good. You know, uh, we we do a lot of Zoom meetings together because we work together. But yeah. um, I think maybe our first conversation was kind of like an interview. But this is my first time really interviewing you. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so the, the podcast intends to kind of target between academia and industry. And you are the perfect guest for that. A lot of the uh, people, many of the people I know who combine those two often start in academia and go to industry, but you have the opposite trajectory. So I guess it's kind of the case. Yeah. Yeah, you started in industry, but yeah, I mean, I guess you got a PhD, but then you also started the game lab. Can you tell us a bit about your your history and how you came to the, this career eventually? Sure. I came to um, games sort of indirectly via avant-garde art. I did my MFA at the University of Buffalo and primarily worked in areas like um, experimental literature and interactive fiction alongside you know games and like an interest in VR. We had a cave system, a low-cost cave system there. What year was, really was this? Uh, I guess I would have started in about 2006. Okay, so, so a, a cave in 06 is pretty advanced. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you worked there for a couple of years, and while I was there, I made some of my best friends in the world. They're still my best friends to this day. And we started working together as a kind of ad hoc avant-garde art collective and made a bunch of really weird projects, some of which were more like games than others, but all of them were weird. And can you give us we, an example, an especially weird one? Yeah, I mean, uh, so as part of what would eventually become my MFA thesis, I did 
a series of interactive concrete poems. And one of the pieces that I made in collaboration with Luke Noonan, who's one of the guys at Rust LTD, was a piece called Mind Sweeper, which is, it's Mind Sweeper, but instead of numbers, you have random consonants that change every time you play the game. So it's this really, it creates this weird situation where you, if you, if you know how to play the game Mind Sweeper, you have some sense of what's happening, but the two systems of representation, the letters and the numbers that you know under, underwrite them are always in conflict. And you have to keep reminding yourself what each letter stands for. And, you know, I mean, it's Minesweeper. So, you know, you have to play it 10 or 15 times um, before you get a good spread on the first click. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's really confusing every time you play it. <laughs> um, so we did okay. stuff like that. Um, so you started as an artist and it was digital art um, and, and there was a cave. So there was VR. And, uh, and from there you started the company Rust or how did that? Yeah, so it was, it was really an uh, art collective until maybe about 2012, I would say. So when I decided to do a doctorate, I was always lockstep. Um, with the other guys at Rust sort of deciding about what the next steps were because we wanted to find some way to build both our academic careers and our um, artistic careers um, alongside one another. And I don't know at the beginning whether or not we thought we had a serious shot at being a company. I mean, I, I can't speak for the other guys directly, but I mean, I come from Buffalo, New York, family of steel workers, you know, came to art pretty late in life compared to a lot of other folks. So I've always sort of taken a pragmatic approach to this kind of thing. And I didn't know anybody in Buffalo who worked in creative industries, right? Like, I don't know, I didn't know the first thing about that, but we thought we'd give it a shot. And um, so when I went to USC uh, in 2011 to start my PhD, we kept working together and we've been working together ever since. We didn't become, I think, anything resembling a company until 2012 or 2013 when we got our first uh, client work and had to incorporate as a matter of legal necessity and had to figure out what the hell that meant. And so it's, it's always kind of been a push pull for me. And I, I think I had assumed that I was going to be, like you were saying, like more on the academic side until maybe, you know, let's say 2015, 2016, when our client work had really picked up. And when we decided that we were going to try to make our first uh, piece of intellectual property, like a real game and sell it for money, like that was I think the first time I, I was like, oh my God, maybe we're actually, maybe we're a company now, like an actual company, not just <laughs> nominally a company. Wow. So, so the path you've taken is, it's a windy path. Can we back up a little bit on that path yeah. uh, to talk yeah. about your background? So you, you say you come from this industrial town, Buffalo. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so how did you get interested in doing art in the first place? Like what were some of the early influences that led you to that, do you think? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I think that it was probably two things that I had to guess. One was I'd always dabbled around with creative writing when I was in college. I never had the time in my schedule to take any creative writing classes, but it just was always interesting to me. And I kept doing it after I finished college. And I, I love film. Like I, I worked at Blockbuster Video when I was in college and, uh, and, I got this. I can't believe how long ago that is. 
like just it's surreal to even talk about video stores and stuff now but when i when i decided to do my mfa i was pivoting away from the career i thought i was going to have which was as a political philosopher the first time around i went to grad school i was at rutgers and i was carrie mcwilliams student i don't know if you know carrie's work um I named the that. younger carrie not like his dad was um you know worked at the nation and wrote north of mexico and has like a statue in pershing square uh, which i learned when i moved to la and got involved in occupy la um but this was his son who wrote the idea of fraternity in america really great stuff so he was an intellectual hero of mine and i got to work with him for about a year or two when i was at rutgers um and i got really sick while i was there so i was on medical leave and he died while i was on medical leave so there was this it was one of those moments where you wonder if you can really go back somewhere, you know what I mean? Like once you've sort of taken a step away and things change like that. So I was doing a lot of soul searching and I thought, you know, I was, I was feeling better, you know, I got back on my feet and I said, I think I wanna give a shot at expressing myself in a different way. I always felt like I could still do philosophy in other contexts and, and, uh, and I found out about the MFA program at, at University of Buffalo and I thought maybe I'd make film. So I, that's what I went, I tried to do it. It turns out I hate editing. I like all the other parts of filmmaking, but I just can't edit, man. I can't sit in front of a you know Final Cut Pro for hours at a time and do it. So I, I respect people who can, it's just, I couldn't do it. Um, so thankfully there were some folks there who, uh, who studied and made video games and found, you know, and other things, experimental literature and stuff. Wow, the path is even windier. Yeah, I have a windy path. You have a windy. It, it's a. Uh, it's deep. I mean, if I were to just describe you as a guy who made a popular video game with a lot of guns, I don't think anyone would expect a philosophical, artistic uh, background, and then and then a PhD in a transition, or maybe less of a transition, maybe a kind of a continuation of the main road, uh, which was to get an academic job at. MSU's Department of Media and Information. So, so 2012, Rust makes its first big game. And then what happened in the next eight years? Uh, we had seven. an interesting moment in 2013 where I guess it would have been the cusp between 2012 and 2013. So in December of 2012, I got a, a call from Anton Hand, who's one of the other guys at Rust. And, uh, you know, you know, like I said, one of my best friends in the world. And he had been ducking my calls for like a week because I'd been telling him he was coming up in his last semester at Rensselaer Polytechnic where he was doing his MFA. And I'd been telling him, you got to start early. Like you've got to start writing. I know that you're going to put this off. It, you know, it's something that you're scared of doing. And, uh, and if you don't get started on this, I'm going to break your knuckles. Like you're not going to be one of those people who suddenly is, you know, pulling all nighters at the end and is just stressed out of your mind. Like just get it done now. So of course he, he just stopped returning my calls for a while because he, he kept wanting to avoid writing. And then he eventually called me and he said, okay, there's this contest that Unity's running uh, for DirectX 11. And uh, I have this idea for something where there's like a ball of fire, I don't know why, in the middle of a space. And there's maybe there's some hands like this, like robot arms doing something with the fire. I don't know, like anyway, uh, try to figure out something that makes this make sense and give me a call back tomorrow. Okay, bye. And that was it. Um, so I did it because that's my job. And we ended up making a game called Museum of the Microstar, which was this tech demo that was designed to satirize tech demos. 
Um, and this really became, I think, a touchstone for the way that we approach all of our work since then, especially the gun game that you alluded to, hot dogs, horseshoes, and hand grenades. Our approach with the tech demo was as follows. We said, on the one hand, we know how to, how to win or at least compete uh, in this competition that's designed to show off the affordances of DirectX 11, the proprietary you know, graphics library that Microsoft runs. And we said, given that there's an opportunity for us to make some unexpected contribution um, to a conversation around something like climate change. So we, we made this piece, I, I designed a space that was a museum in some weird distant future that chronicled two things alongside one another, the technological progression that led to the creation of a stable microstar, which became a source of fusion in the sci-fi universe for interplanetary travel. And also the technological progression that led to the Earth's destruction. And the two went hand in hand in this case. So yeah, that's it there. Um, As you can, if anyone's watching, uh, you can see on my screen, I brought up their rust page with uh yeah i saw this earlier it looks pretty funny too <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not bad and thanks i i mean that was my job so i hope it i hope it was at least kind of funny uh yeah and so it was kind of like i, I think my avant-garde education served me well here and served us well in that it was designed to be remediated it was designed to function as a tech demo for interest for people who were interested in a in approaching it on those terms and if people were interested in trying out the narrative mode, they would find that it was a dark satire of the tech demo format in general. And we were fortunate enough to win that competition. So it got some press and got us some more client work. I think the, the thing we didn't expect was that, I think it was maybe in March of 2020, I'm sorry, 2013, we got our hands on a, a DK1 and Oculus DK1, so the original development kit for the Rift. And it just occurred to Luke and to Anton that porting it to VR would be pretty easy. So they, well, I mean, comparatively easy for those guys, <laughs> hard for normal humans. Um, so they spent like two or three days and just ported it to VR. And I think we were the second or third thing that ran on the DK1. So every time some group of people like journalists or you know, enthusiasts would get one of these waves of DK1s that would just sort of ship out in groups of a couple thousand, there would just be this wave of press and wave of coverage and discussion. And it turned out that the, it was successful in both of the ways that we hoped, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there were people talking about what MicroStar could do to promote a different way of looking at climate change. Um, so that, that, yeah, that ended up being, a, I think, a really important formative moment for us and, and showed us that we could potentially succeed as a company making our own stuff, but also do it on our, on our own terms and, and still sneak in, you know, complicated stuff uh, in, into pop, you know, um, rappers, I don't know. Um, and, and if anything, I mean, that's, that's, that makes it much more meaningful. It's so awesome that you're in our department. We've got this conference called Meaningful Play. You know, even if you're making games for entertainment, if you can sneak in a little bit of, in some cases, educational content, but in, in your case, it's it's social critique, uh, or in the case of MicroStar, um, 
it's no surprise that you've got that background in art and philosophy and kind of avant-garde uh, understandings of the world. So very cool. Uh, and, and it's making more sense for me. I hope it's making sense for the listeners too. So tell me, where did it go from there, um, getting to the HDHHG game? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess there was maybe like a two and a half, maybe year period where I was doing a lot of school work, right? I mean, you know how it is. And we were doing a lot of client work and we would release a small project here or there, but a lot of the stuff that we were doing, we couldn't either, we, we couldn't tell people that we were working on it. A lot of client work, I think a lot of my students are surprised when they hear this, that a lot of client work in that middle or ascending portion of your career as uh, as a group of independent designers, a lot of that client work is dark. A lot of it is something that you can't take credit for. That's that's part of what your client is paying for is that they subcontract to you, you do the work, and then maybe you've come to some agreement with them where they can you can like share it privately, right? Um, so we can say, you know, we, we worked on uh, a number of simulations, representations of um, energy grids, uh, and how those might change for a couple of British companies, or um, or we worked on some roller, like a, a VR roller coaster ride, and uh, and another thing. I'm trying to just how would I describe this? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, so a, a bunch of like random stuff, mm -hmm. and um, and I did some other client work that wasn't directly related to Rust. Like I I designed a fantasy football app for Dave and Buster's, right? Because I love fantasy football. So it just seemed like a lot of fun. Um, but then I guess we got to the point where our skills, we, we had all leveled up and I think that we were itching to do something like MicroStar again. And we knew that the first version of the Vive was getting into hands of developers in late 2015. We didn't receive a Vive until February of 2016. And immediately Anton said that he wanted to try something that we had never done before, which was open development, right? Like we had never, we're not the kind of people who would do podcasts by disposition, right? Like particularly me, I'm a pretty shy person. Um, so that was always like, oh, I don't wanna do that, right? Uh, and Anton too, wasn't particularly interested in it, but he, I think he decided for that reason to take that as a challenge head on. And, we had learned what it meant to be a part of a community of early adopters and enthusiasts with MicroStar um, to say, we can be a part of shaping some conversation around this hardware if we're just willing to take a deep breath and, and actually engage people publicly. So he said, okay, I'm gonna start doing open development. And he just started doing some simple tests with just testing scenes for VR. Uh, it had weird light lighting situations and interactable objects and it had a few guns in it because Anton's a gun enthusiast but also because guns are a great way to test interaction modalities at, at medium and uh, and long distances so he was doing a lot of interaction tests and for one reason or another they they went viral the the videos that he was posting all of a sudden one of his videos had gotten like a hundred thousand views which just destroyed our minds like it was not something I think in any way we were prepared for and as his devlogs went viral we got a we were contacted by Valve and they asked if we wanted to turn what he had been 
showing in mid to late February in these open devlogs into a commercial product and launch on April 5th, 2016, which was when the first HTC Vives were gonna reach the hands of consumers. Like a month and a half. <laughs> yeah, so luckily, and this is to take a step back, when we did MicroStar, Anton contacted me in the early part of December, said there's this competition going on, it ends at the end of December, let's do this. This was a way that we all worked like really manically and like these short sprints, we would, we would do a great deal of work and then just crash at the end, right? And and uh, it's not a good set of work habits, not a healthy set of work habits. And yet it's the reason why we were able to ship this on time is because we got used to doing this uh, for our and other people's work. So yeah, in, in about five weeks, maybe six weeks, we went from zero to launch title. And uh, yeah, and, and when, we, when we put it out there, there were really only, I think, three scenes in the game. There were two simple ranges and there was, uh, grenade ski ball level, which we found relatively quickly. We couldn't call ski ball since ski ball is like Kleenex. You think of yeah. it as a, just a regular old word to describe something, but it's not, it's a trademarked word. So it, that became boom ski pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that would have been April 5th, 2016. And hot dogs has been the, the primary thing that we've been working on ever since then. Okay. Um, so 2016, you're, you're releasing, you're getting lots of downloads and attention, press attention. Um, but then 2018, you're applying for this job. What year is this? 2021? Did I start? I started last year. Okay. So you started in 2020. Okay. So you, so you applied in 19. So you had a couple of years with, uh, the game building it up, um, seeing what it was like to, to experience the kind of developer high life, I guess. Um, but, but still academia was, was for you. Yeah, I was teaching the plan at, and yeah, I was teaching at UCLA USC um, in 2017 and 2018 to 2019. I was, I was a professor at Occidental, mm -hmm. which was a great school, just not really the right fit for me. And um, I always wanted to teach. I mean, that was that's something I love to do. Mm -hmm. So I was always trying to find some way to keep one foot in both worlds. And MSU had been on my radar for a long time. I mean, like I said, I, I did my MFA at a state school and uh, I, I make sense in the Rust Belt. It's a place I feel really comfortable. I feel like I can connect with students in a way that I, I can't necessarily at a place like Occidental. You know, I used to talk to Carrie McWilliams about this years ago that like no, no teacher can reach every student and it's, it's like being a comedian, like you can't make everyone laugh. So you kind of have to figure out the way that you feel most comfortable expressing yourself and the people that you can you can reach most directly. Or at least that's that's the way I feel about teaching. Because, um, you know, I don't know, you make things up and it's part of the story. I don't know. Does that make, does that make sense? I don't know. I don't know if it does. If that, if that's the, actually the comedian metaphor is, is good for me. It's also literal for me. I feel like I'm a comedian on stage <laughs> in front of my students, sometimes not making them laugh. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I was selling, telling this to a student a couple of weeks ago that something that was hard for me to learn as an artist is that you can't I'm gonna say this the right way. So when I was in college and I got into writing poetry, I came across a poet named Phil Levine who wrote a great book called What Work Is. And he lived in Detroit for a long time, worked in the auto industry. 
And he writes really serious, really beautiful stuff about what it means to work in a factory and what it meant to live in and around, um, let's say the Vietnam War or something. And I loved his work and I tried really hard to write like Phil Levine and I was terrible at it. I was just bad. And I just thought it was because I was a bad poet. I was a mediocre poet, but I wasn't like, that was my problem. My problem was that I was trying to imitate someone instead of just trying to figure out who I was. I did that for a number of years as an amateur. And then I came across a poet named Russell Edson. If you've ever read any of Russell Edson's work, he's a prose poet and he writes absurd little one or two paragraph pieces. They're, they're like stories that break themselves on purpose, a little like Daniel Carm's work. And I loved his work and reading it, it wasn't just pleasurable. It was like somebody had given me permission to go to the bathroom. Russell Edson used to call uh, the act of creative writing, he used to equate it to a bowel movement. And that was part of his humor, but he meant it seriously. Like you just have to let it out. It just comes out whether you like it or not. Um, and that was, I think the first moment for me where I started to accept that I'm a, I'm a dark comic absurdist as a writer. I, I, I can't pretend to be otherwise when I try. So, you know, when I, the approach that I took to MicroStar, the approach that I take to H3, it's partly tactical. I want to find some way to make something that's pop and accessible. And then while somebody's playing the experience, they say, wait a minute, what was that? But it's also because I can't do what other people do. You know, I, I respect the hell out of designers who do really serious stuff or educational stuff. And I've worked on projects like that, um, but it's just not natural for me. I'm second rate at stuff like that. It's just, it's not who I am. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and, and you're great at what you do and, and it sounds like you like it. So um, yeah, enjoy, enjoy that realization. I think it takes a long time for a lot of us to find the, yeah. the styles that resonate with our success. Um, so, and speaking of success, let's, let's pat ourselves on the back here. It looks like we're getting a grant. Uh, no, I don't, I don't want to jinx it. Now it's on. Oh, I know. I'm not, I'm knocking um, on wood. Knock right on the wood, but it looks like uh, we'll have this grant looking at Zoom fatigue, virtual meetings. Part of that involves creating a virtual environment in which we measure or, well, we try to embody some of the lessons learned about um, equity in virtual meetings. And of course, a piece of that for me is going to be the avatar mm -hmm. element. And, you know, I, I love avatars and talk about it a lot in this podcast. Um, so the last topical area that I'd like to, to kind of prime here is what is your take on avatars, maybe from the the dark comic side, from the avant-garde, like what, what is a dark avant-garde avatar like? Um, would you, you use pitching one? pitching me a softball here, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I am ready to talk about this. Oh, ready, go, hit it hard. All right, so I'm gonna send you a link here in chat because I feel like if ever there was a need for visual references, this would probably be it. Um, so I'm a, as I alluded to earlier, I'm a big sports fan. Yeah. And uh, when I was in 2016, just starting to do a lot of work on H3, uh, our, our big video game, my hobby at the time was playing NBA 2K16. I've, I've been playing NBA 2K for years. And I found in playing it, 
I, I was the first year that I played online and I found in playing it this frustration with my ability to express myself via the avatar creation tools. There's a real sort of suburbanization effect, um, a real homogenous, uh, I don't know how to say this, like everyone who plays NBA 2K16 looks the same in really fundamental ways. And the tools are super problematic. I mean, this is, this is something I'm sure that you've written about and you know a great deal about. I'm, I'm thinking here of Amanda Phillips' work and how she's talked a lot about how um, racial and gendered ethnic assumptions are built into the hardware that underpin a variety of avatar creation tools. Anyway, so I'm playing online and, uh, and I got really frustrated with how limited my ability to express myself was. So I found that, and this was unique to 2016, to NBA 2K16, you could use an Intel RealSense camera to scan your face at the time. It's the first year that they'd, that they'd allowed people to do that. And since then they've moved to an app that allows you to do it. And this is a problem, I think, because it's a lot harder to, to glitch out an app than it is if you're using something like the RealSense camera where you have access directly to the hardware. Anyway, so, so I found a variety of ways to break the software underpinning this, this avatar creation. And I These started to so make- funny. I started to make progressively weirder uh, creations. And it got to the point that I learned a few things from it. One, that if you did things like this, everyone assumed you were a cheater. This was all on PC um, because there's a very strong correlation between people who do this, who glitch things out, and people who uh, modify their stats, right? Which is really important to competitive online play. The other thing I learned is that there were a lot of other people who were craving this and who didn't have the tools available to them to, to do it. So I started to do commissions. So these last four pieces that you're looking at were commissioned. I didn't charge anything, but people that I played with regularly wanted me to make for... avatars for them. So I found ways to do that. Um, yeah. So this one's great. It's, it's a good ender piece. Um, <laughs> absurd is certainly a term that comes to mind. <laughs> and I don't know how much this played directly into the decisions that we made with um, hot dogs, but you know, we we chose very early on to in our in H three to to never use any representations of people in the game, with one exception. We we do have a target in it that is a standard target for competitive um, gun courses that is you know in a minimalist way. It's like a rectangle where the body would be and a smaller rectangle where the head would be and there are zones that score. Um, this was something that we had to add. Um, just too many, too many folks requested it. Um, otherwise, every single character in the game is a hot dog. And this has baffled a certain small but very vocal um, group of people and fans and users. But the vast majority of people have come, I think, to embrace that we chose to only allow hot dogs in the game and they're little wibbly uh things i mean um, and what was that what was the original conversation around that choice like that's oh god i i think this the tldr would be we wanted the game to be steeped in americana in a really self-aware satirical way that we would be able to draw out for a really long time we had a sense pretty early on that this was 
potentially going to be a forever game, you know, something that we could continue to push updates for, add content to for a few years and, um, and, make, and make money from it. Uh, I think we underestimated that because, you know, this was our best year this past year and we continue to add more and more content and the stuff that we add is bigger than most games that get released. Like just one update that we add is like a, a full game. So it's lucky that we chose this weird absurdist bedrock of Americana. So, so yeah, so I think that would be probably the primary reason why we did that. As you said, there's nothing more American than hot dogs and horseshoes and hand grenades, I guess. The other one is that Anton is our primary uh, 3D artist and he is by training an environmental artist. And he has said this for years that once you get to a certain point, as a 3D artist, you, you're going to specialize and you're going to specialize along two paths. You're going to either going to be an environmental artist or a character artist. So he didn't want to make you know, realistic humans anyway, right? Like setting aside any reservations we, we had about shooting realistic people, particularly when we're making really realistic firearms in the game. Um, he wouldn't have wanted to make walking, talking people anyway, because it's not that's not his training. So as a group, we're always looking for ways to avoid putting people in games anyway. But, um, but that's just like a secondary thing. The, the primary thing was we wanted to have a hard contrast between the near field stuff you were seeing, these super realistic guns, and the mid to far field stuff you were seeing, which is absurdist, you know, animatronic hot dogs. That is, I think, very much at the heart of absurdism and um, magical realism and surrealism. Like, the, the hard contrast between um, between representative qualities, but also like your expectations as a viewer. Everyone that's that comes into this game is expecting, unless they've been watching the devlogs for years, is expecting to see what you see in every first person shooter. You see a gun, you see people, and you get to shoot those people. It's very, so to mess with one component of that, I think has been refreshing for a lot of people. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think speaking of contrast um, and refreshing experiences, this conversation with you is super different yet super relevant to this podcast. We often talk about these technologies, the effects they have on people, our research on them, but I'm usually talking to people who are so far removed from the creation of of the technologies. Now, I, I have been speaking more recently to um, people working in industry, people who have companies in VR workspaces or avatars for virtual meetings, but not in game development. And, um, and it's a really interesting and unique perspective on the, the thought process that goes into game development when you can do it your way. Yeah. Especially when your way is very unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always see it as an opportunity for convergent thinking between academics on, let's just sort of like artificially say academics on the one hand and industry folks on the other. There's, there's cross chatter between the two, but I think it's um, the folks that I know that come at games primarily as artists or designers, they're far more frequently looking inward or talking to one another or looking at other art as a basis for the experimentation and the making that they do. They're not reading articles 
in some you know web of science index journal right and it's not to say that they shouldn't or couldn't it's just to say that's i don't know of anybody who begins their artistic process by going to one of those journals right and this means that oftentimes academics and artists will come to similar conclusions and make similar decisions mostly independent of one another which is a great opportunity for convergent thinking to emerge right um, and I'm always looking for that as someone who, you know, I, I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, but my primary way of entering a research situation is via my practice. And, um, and I think it, it creates really awesome opportunities for the kind of collaboration that we're going to do and uh, the kind of collaboration that I see a lot of other folks in the industry starting to do as these game development tools have gotten more accessible. And I think as academia has gotten more comfortable with collaboration as such, we've moved away from the sort of single author monograph model of, you know, institutional approval. I think there are going to be a lot more opportunities for, you know, for people to enrich each other's point of views and for designers to work with an, you know, an academic, let's say an expert and, oh, I don't know, avatars, right, who, who say, oh, you know, if, if I had known you in 2016, for example, when I was arguing um, behind the scenes, like we absolutely cannot add anything anthropomorphic to this game other than a walking talking hot dog we were getting inundated with requests um and our our user base was exploding and we were i think like a lot of other small design groups totally unprepared for this right so we're doing a lot of soul seeking and we're talking to one another like how much do we give the user base what they want to have access to somebody who could have provided me with like expert level guidance like you can on the nature of avatars and how users relate to them and what it means for people to um, engage content that is so weirdly different from what they might normally have done could have been so enriching, could have been incredible, but I didn't know anybody like that, right? I didn't know anybody who was working in those fields. So whatever decisions that we've made for better or worse, you know, we're largely just driven by what we thought was interesting, what we put into the game and how people responded to it. It's not, it doesn't mean that it's it's any more or less valid. It means that it's been firewalled off in, in its inception from that stuff, and yeah, and um, and I think that's a shame to some extent, you know. Yeah, but um, I, I like what you're saying. Convergent thinking is valuable from the perspective of developers, designers, and artists. Certainly, you you don't know the researchers; they're just not in your networks, and you're not yeah. doing that stuff. And Hopefully this episode, I, I imagine that the podcast has an audience in academia to a greater extent than in development. And so hopefully academics out there, we remember that artists are at the heart of the creation of many of the tools we study. It's not just technologists who are making tools for use. You need artists, you need people who are, and, and we don't just mean art, like you're making visualizations of things that are being used, but, but art goes beyond that. There's a philosophy of art um, that matters in, in the approach to many of these things. So in the same way that uh, the, the design development side might forget about the researchers, I'm, I'm pretty sure the researchers have forgotten about the artists um, and we can work against that. Speaking of, uh, I'm open to advisory roles on game companies, <laughs> virtual ah. avatars, social interaction companies, hit me up. <laughs> um and and certainly adam you you have a very successful side gig so um i doubt we need to pitch 
pitch rust. Um, but but certainly we are gonna we are gonna work well together in, in the academic context. And so thank you so much for being a guest today. That was a pleasure. By the way, have you ever done any voice acting? Uh no. Just be Sounds careful. Like it's part of that consultant role that you might do. It might rope you into a little voice acting. Oh, I would new, love uh... to do some voice acting. Okay, we've got a new game mode that we're working on that uh, there's going to be a lot of characters in it. Just oh, yeah. Hundreds. So, um, so I'll keep you in the loop about there, that. There was a brief moment where I, I really enjoyed my voice. Uh, it was about age 13 to about age 13 and a half. And it went away. Because <laughs> I'd, I'd gone through puberty and, and it, my voice dropped and friends were like, oh, wow, your voice. But now, now, like everyone, I don't want to hear myself yeah. on the answering machine. It's that, that voice that we all had. You know? uh, yeah. What was the character on The Simpsons? Like, I dropped my taco in the deep fat fryer, right? Martin um, or something? I don't remember. Yeah, I, I feel the same way about my voice. I, I may have had an even shorter period of time where I, uh, I enjoyed my voice. But yeah, to my great surprise, I've done a bunch of voice acting now for hot dogs. Most, oh, yeah. Mostly the tippy toys. I, there's a, I do a couple of the major characters, too, but... We have a lot of tippy toys in the game. You know, yeah. you know a tippy toy? Uh, like it fills up and then it, yeah. It's like, the, it's a little cylinder. These are, I don't remember when they started making these toys. It's a little cylinder and you turn it like that and it makes a oh, noise, yeah. right? It's so like a cow. Yeah. Yeah, so we yeah, have yeah. a cow in the game. Yeah. We have pigs, but they got more and more absurd as the game went on. So we have ah. a lemon that screams when you tip it. And oh, I think awesome. I've done like six or seven of those. Um, awesome. Like yeah, gas, I need to start playing this game with my kids um we're we're like you know my wife might not like all the guns uh, but yeah. tell her it's like it's a, it's contrast it's absurdism just look at the hot dogs and how they are in the far yeah. field and that'll make sense most difficult thing in showing our game and, and introducing our game to people is that it's it's difficult to to play like manually and there's so much to learn um not just in relation to like the content itself but the interaction modalities nobody is really familiar with them right like this is a medium that has no received cultural wisdom driving its interaction paradigms yeah. and um the thing i was going to leave you with i don't know if you've been following this i'm going to see if i can send you a good video of it but um we've been adding doors to the game um and specifically like actually realistic doors which is a horrible idea traditionally like game developers avoid this like the plague that it is so of course we leaned hard into it because we're ah. um but um we've started making these real fake doors and see if i can find a good link to the update videos for it um and and do people avoid it because opening them is a pain and doorknobs are the everything about it is a pain even in pancake games like traditional you know like 3d video games it's hard to make there's too many fail points right like mm -hmm. simulating a, a realistic door is just oh god like there's so many things that can go wrong and it's so computationally expensive and for those listeners out there who can't see i will put all these links from adam into the post on the website and probably well it wouldn't help to put it on youtube because you're watching so this is our weekly devlog from July 2nd. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what possessed Anton to do this, but it's one of the wonderful things when you have, our, our game has essentially become a massive repository for experimentation. And nobody really expects what we're doing to always make sense. And this does make sense. Like we're, we're adding these doors to this new game mode. 
but it doesn't really make much sense for us to have made them as richly interactive as they are in traditional development terms. Yeah, to put a key in. <laughs> yeah, so the key keys work and they and they actually work like they're interactable physics driven objects so you could as easily knock something off of a table with that key as put it into a lock. And do you need specific keys for specific locks? You do indeed. Yeah, the right. the um the mechanism, the locking mechanism is an actual locking mechanism that works again in accordance with the laws of physics. <laughs> um, and you'll see that, you know, if you were to like scrub through or something like you might see the um, the deadbolts work like deadbolts. They are actual semi somewhat rectangular objects that fit into, you know, um, there they are like, that fit yeah. into the, the, the hole in the door. That um, is so funny. <laughs> And every one of the doors is destructible. And when it breaks, it breaks in interesting and also realistic ways. So this is, I mean, this is at the heart of our game. This like this very strange cognitive dissonance between the most realistic simulations that exist on the market right now and hot dogs, like walking weird hot, that, there's the door breaking. Um, Putting those two things in contrast with one another has really given us the space to do a lot of things that I don't think that we'd be able to do as an indie design firm, whether it's from, you know, the statements that we've tried to make in, in relation to progressive um, social issues, yeah, and um, social movements, to just like largely academic interests in making the most realistic doors that have ever appeared in a game, right? <laughs> Um, and it is like that's we're not building off of other people's work here because nobody else wants to do this. We're just <laughs> break, we're breaking new ground in a really stupid way. And I don't know if this is going to be useful to other people, but I think I'm probably going to write a paper about this and we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Virtual yeah. doors, real physics. Real fake doors. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you've opened many doors in my mind today, Adam. Thank you. Virtual and real. Sure. And I look forward to hanging more with you, maybe on the podcast uh, sometime in the future, but certainly in our research group meeting. So thanks a lot. And, and in person, oh my gosh, COVID is ending slowly. And One of these days, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Adam. Thanks. Catch you later. Okay. That was our interview with Adam Liskowitz. It was great. It really made me think about how research communities and designer and development and artist communities don't talk enough. And that's why a department like ours, which is interdisciplinary, is so valuable. Similar realization as when I spoke with Casey O'Donnell, who's in the department as well, coming from a game designer and developer background, also, also uh, designer and developer studies. Uh, but I don't get as much of that art background from Casey as I did from Adam. He's He's a thoughtful and very intelligent, deep, absurd human being. Um, I, I don't think he's absurd, I guess. Uh, he appreciates absurdism. Um, and, and yeah, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. It reminds me that I should spend more time appreciating art and poetry with my kids so that they can be creative in their in their own lives, creative beyond um, beyond just production, right? Creative in unique and new ways as they as they create things. And we've created an episode, uh, not just me, our producers George McNeil and Taylor Halterman. Thank you very much 
for your work. And thank you for listening to the Sparty Cast. If you liked it, follow, subscribe, and tell your mom. Tune in to our next episode where I will be speaking with Maxwell Foxman, an assistant professor in the University of Oregon who specializes in game studies and does really interesting work on journalism in games, focusing on VR. He's also actually part of the same research group as Adam and I and a few other people. So you'll hear us refer to some of the same projects, including the one for which we are very hopeful about getting a grant in the near future. Tune in. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye, world.